Welcome back, podcast fans. I'm your host, Annette Hines, and this is Parenting Impossible, the Special Needs Survival Podcast. This is going to be a tough episode. The things we're going to talk about are hard to hear and yet so important. Um, The reason that it's hard to hear is because we don't want to think about our children or our loved ones being abused or being victimized in any way. But it's important that we talk about these things and that we shine a light on victimization and abuse that happens in our disability community, in fact, in all our communities. I had the distinct pleasure to interview two crusaders. And although these are very hard conversations, and I honestly can tell you that I cried for days about the conversation and about what we talked about and about all the things that I have seen and experienced both personally as well as in my profession. I feel that it's so important to keep having these discussions and talking to each other because when you shine a light on abuse, it helps to keep the abuse from happening or it helps to prevent further abuse. When we don't talk about abuse and we keep it in the shadows, it makes it easier for abusers to do what they do. I want to read you a story coming out of Illinois about a disabled young patient who went to an institution to get treatment and was abused instead. This is credited to ProPublica and their information is at www.propublica.org. So this article that was uh, published there talks about a 24-year-old with developmental disabilities who was brutally beaten by his caretakers inside a state-run facility that had a long, long history of patient abuse. So the, um, the resident was um, just leaving breakfast and um, was ordered to pull up his saggy pants and he didn't obey and responded, I'm a gangster. This is how we do it where I'm from. Um, although he's not a, a very tough person. Uh, many witnesses uh, after investigators came on the scene and started investigating this incident told that the resident was taken to the floor, held down by four techs and repeatedly punched in the face according to a 700-page state police investigation that was obtained by this reporter under the Freedom of Information Act. Of course, the resident tried to fight back. He cursed, he spit, but but then his resistance was met with more blows. Um, He was diagnosed with multiple diagnoses, including autism, and he reports that he felt like he was hit at least 100 times. One tech told police that she vomited at the sight of his injured face. This institution is located in Southern Illinois and meets the needs of some of the most profound disabled persons in the state. Uh, They'd been cited in 2009 for failing to protect residents from physical and psychological abuse and harm. But the federal agency that investigated at that time did not sue the state of Illinois, a step that it had taken in other states. And they closed their investigation in 2013, saying in a report to Congress that the Illinois officials had made adequate improvements. However, 
this resident's beating happened just the next year. And while it was one of the most egregious examples of abuse of a resident in a decade, the investigation found that the incident is one of many, many instances of mistreatment at this rural facility managed by the Illinois Department of Human Services. Reporters from this team filed more than 50 public records requests and reviewed thousands of pages of documents. They talked to former employees, current employees, advocates, residents, guardians, and many more interested parties and revealed a systemic pattern of patient abuse, neglect, humiliation, and exploitation. Over a 10-year period, the state police opened at least 40 criminal investigations into alleged employee misconduct at this institution, more than any other facilities in Southern Illinois. But they find that perhaps this is not an extraordinary number of incidences, just an extraordinary number of reportings. Among the most recent arrests are four employees who were accused of choking and beating another uh, patient resident in 2020, leading to felony battery charges. But two pled guilty to misdemeanor charges in exchange for probation sentences, and two cases are still pending. Earlier this year, an employee was charged with criminal sexual assault of an intellectually disabled person who lives there. And another case this year in 2022, an employee was charged for allegedly grabbing a nonverbal patient with the mental capacity of a 15-month-old by the neck and punching him in the back of the head as a security officer watched. This is according to court records. These three cases are still pending. Over the years, advocates had called for this facility to be closed, but claim that it's a purely political decision to keep it open because it's providing jobs, but they failed miserably at their mission, which is to support and care for and protect people with various intellectual and developmental disabilities. Their spokesperson acknowledges the seriousness of the concerns there and says that these problems are the result of long-standing entrenched issues dating back decades, but also that the agency has taken aggressive measures over the past several years to unravel them, including increasing staffing and training and appointing um, an independent legal advocacy organization to monitor conditions. However, that doesn't seem to be working. As the beating of this resident continued, one of the employees shouted for restraints, and then he was dragged to his room and bound to his bed with black nylon straps around his ankles, wrists, and chest. There's some evidence that he, in his room, that he was continue, he continued to be beaten while he was there. And the person who had been accused of harming him was also accused of harming residents on seven previous occasions since he had started his employment in 2011. He'd been cleared to return to work each and every This uh, alleged beating inside the resident's room was witnessed by another resident. And the crime scene photos show blood spatter on the floor and walls of the bedroom. They threatened the resident with death if he reported that employees had beat him up and they made fun of him for not having a girlfriend and they punched him again in the jaw, nose and eyes as he was told, as was told to the state police in an interview they had with him. They've got proof of employees talking to each other about this beating and laughing about it on texts. So this person was charged with three felony counts of aggravated battery and intimidation in 2016. And then in 2016, charges were filed against three other employees who were all accused of helping this person conceal the abuse and lying to the police. 
Within a month of being charged, three of them cut a deal, no jail time, and ended up with misdemeanor convictions for failing to report a matter to the authorities. Nothing worse than that. Seven years later, after the assault, the uh, alleged person who had done the beating pled guilty to a felony, but not for beating the resident. He pled guilty for obstruction um, and destroying evidence by throwing away the bloody towel he'd used to mop up the resident's blood. He was sentenced to two years of probation for that. And until this writing, this case had never been covered in the press. It obviously didn't serve as a deterrent for the ongoing mistreatment of residents by employees at that institution. I can go on and on with all of the reasons why this happens. People with mental illness, developmental disabilities, intellectual disabilities, and other disabilities make the perfect targets for individuals who just want to use them for their own gain, whether that's, you know, some kind of uh, target for their anger and their hatred, um, sexual gratification, and so much more. How can we stop this if the officials, once they're told about a situation, do not value the lives of people with disabilities enough to actually prosecute these crimes? Do you think that if somebody had done that to you or me when we were in the hospital or some other setting where somebody was charged with caring for us, that these would have been the same? Outcomes for those cases? I don't think so. I'd like to say that I'm surprised, but I'm not, having been involved in too many cases here in my own state. I continue to be horrified each and every time. And I'd really like to ask all of you to think carefully about what you might do to push this agenda forward and to draw attention to the horrible living conditions of so many people with disabilities in our country. <sighs> let me take a breath and let me talk to you for just a minute about our guests today. So um, I have Dr. Amy Saltzman who is the creator of a company called Spot a Spider. So fantastic, so creative. This is a comprehensive program to prevent abuse in sports and other settings. She is um, so beyond qualified to speak on this topic. She has so much expertise and she's a, an accomplished author, speaker, and contributor. And it was, it was um, really eye-opening talking with her. Research indicates that children are most vulnerable to sexual abuse between the ages of 7 and 13. But unfortunately, engaging in age-appropriate educational materials that teach children to recognize and prevent abuse are almost non-existent. They are also almost non-existent in the disability community as well. But now we have something. Because Spot a Spider is groundbreaking as a new training program that Dr. Saltzman uh, created and, and started. And it teaches children, teens, and adults young adults and, and adults, how to protect themselves from all types of abuse. She separates out sneaky, which is covert emotional abuse, and that's also known as grooming, and obvious overt emotional, physical, and sexual abuse. She's a former Stanford gymnast, an abuse survivor, which I love that term. And she has a lot to say 
um, about this topic that she is so passionate about and establishing a comprehensive national and international set of policies to end abuse in sports, but also in other community programs. In addition, the if you all recall the Larry Nasser case, Tiana Tichelle, a uh, three times Olympic gold medalist, athlete, author, and abuse survivor, Nancy Hogshead Makar, a three times Olympic gold medalist swimmer and rape survivor and CEO of Champion Women, amongst others, and also Judge Rosemary Aquilina, who was the judge of Larry Nasser's trial. These are several very accomplished people that are on the board of Spot a Spider. So, also in our interview this week, we have Judge Aquilina. She is also an accomplished speaker and author. She was the first female JAG officer in the Michigan Army National Guard, retiring with 20 years of honorable service, law professor at Michigan State. And she has presided over many trials of this nature. It was wonderful talking with her about not just the trial itself, but about why Spot a Spider and programs like it are so, so needed. I hope that you'll take this information and um, besides being very emotional about it, like I am, find a way to work this into your conversations with your kids, your family members, the institutions that support, and also everyone in your circle of care. I hope that this recording is not too triggering for anybody. And I'm really hopeful that with more conversation, we can really curb the tide of abuse in our community. Please let me know, as always, if you have any questions or concerns or anything that you want to talk about. I'm here for you. And here we go. So today, um, as I mentioned in the intro, this is a very sensitive topic. It certainly has uh, the possibility to trigger some people. We're going to be talking about child abuse, child sexual abuse, and it's very important that you don't listen to this in the car with your kids unless you have prepared them for this conversation. And also, you know, that you're ready to hear all of this as well. So although this is a tough subject, it's so important. We need to be talking about this. Um, the We're going to talk about the, the numbers and the data and everything, but it's such a phenomenon. I, in getting ready for this interview, um, I talked to a number of people just in my group, in my circle. Every single family was touched by child abuse and mostly child sexual abuse in some way or another. And it's so profound that this is so widespread. It's touched my family multiple times in multiple ways. And um, it's just that important that we don't hide this in the closet anymore. We need to be talking about it. So I'm super excited to introduce you to Dr. Amy Saltzman and the Honorable Judge Rosemary Aquilina. So um, oh, let's get started. So Your Honor, this really um, starts with you. You presided over an extremely important case. It was um, kind of groundbreaking in a lot of ways. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the case and, you know, sort of what that, what that all meant to you. So can we start there? Sure. So I presided over the Dr. Larry Nasser case, and I hate to even put Dr. and Nasser in the same sentence. But right. 
So everybody understands that anybody can be an abuser and we need to look at who we can and cannot trust and what the signs are, which is our conversation today. And thank you for that because the education is so important. What I learned in that case, because, and please understand that case was not different for me than any other case. I always talk and let everybody talk because crime doesn't have a border. And I want to know the full background so that I can make a good decision on the bench in terms of sentencing and my, you know, how I read the law. And Nasser assaulted at that time, I think law enforcement didn't realize how large it was, but um, almost every athlete he touched, male and female, mostly female. And I had made an announcement so because I knew at this point so many people were interested in it at the plea, I said, anybody who has been affected can talk. Uh, not everybody was happy about that, but that's always been my practice. And people are not happy with that because they have to wait in court and because the sheriff wants to get his people back and the lawyers want right. to get back to their office. They're taking a lot of flack for that, but it opened a lot of doors, unbeknownst to me. And what I heard was the same story over and over and over again about the grooming and the gaslighting and so many things that were going on with his practices that he claimed were medical when they were actually sexual. And he literally groomed not only the athletes, but their parents and other coaches and law enforcement. And so he was able to get away with sexually assaulting thousands of girls. 156 spoke in front of me. I listened to 169 people, but the number is over 505. And I do know that there are probably thousands because I run into them and not everybody wants to come forward. And right. they say, me too, buy him, but I didn't want the money. I'm over it. I'm doing as best as I can. And, you, you know, it's something you never get over. But ultimately, I think the world took notice because the cameras were there, because there were high-profile athletes and said, this is the way a courtroom should run. We should have safe places where people can talk. And why is it that a judge has to say, what would you like me to know and how can I help? Why aren't we all saying it? So there were right. lessons and thankfully things have changed, but I was just doing my job. I, I'm really nobody special. I'm just somebody who sees the law as an open door, not a closed one. Oh, that's amazing. I mean, being an attorney, I've appeared in front of a lot of judges and it's, you know, it runs the gamut for sure. Um, there are definitely those that really need the court to just keep moving along. And there's not time to actually hear from the people that you're presiding over that you are there for, you know, justice for them. Um, so it's, it's heartwarming. One of the things about the disability community is that voices are, are stifled. Our voices are not heard. And so I lecture around the country on this issue of voices and choices, voice and choice. Um, but you, you gave those folks a choice. I don't even want to call them victims. I hate that word. You know, um, I know that they certainly are thrivers and heroes. Yes. So you use that term, Sir Thriver. I love that. I want to ask you guys about that too. So did this case impact you in a profound way? And I know that this was not your first. So mm -hmm. unfortunately, this is not unusual. I mean, maybe the number of victims just because of his ability to have access, but not unusual, follows all kinds of patterns. So the profound way it affected me was listening to every victim, watching them turn into survivor and thriver right in front of my eyes, shedding their pain and growing 10 feet tall. And they came in front of me very sort of um, closed off and their body language was hunched over and they really didn't want to be there and they were afraid. 
And then they started to get their courage and they said, and I am not a number, I am a name and you will listen to me. And judge, can I listen, can I talk directly to him? And I made sure that I, which I have always done, I give anybody who testifies in front of me as a victim something to hang on to because of the power of the robe. I think it should be one of healing, not hell raising, really. Mm -hmm. And um, so I felt like I gave birth to 156 babies because it was that uplifting for me at the end. But ultimately, what it did is really reminded me that the education is not out there. We need to make sure that we're explaining um, really what what I call in in my motivational speaking um, ribs, which is the right to say no, informed consent, boundaries and body parts, surprises not secrets, and talk to a safe person. And mm-hmm. you know the four T's: trust your gut, talk, take action, and treat yourself with kindness, which is really what Dr. Saltzman um, is doing the education piece. And so it really motivated me to get out there and speak and to not stop. And if somebody wants to get rid of me, take me off the bench because of my voice, then so be it. But I want to leave this world safer for my kids and all our kids are linked. So about all of our kids, when I die, I don't want to say, and I won't be saying, you know, oh, I'm happy I have this house or this car or this ring. I want to say, thank God for my family and that the world is better. I don't want to go worried. And I am very, very worried. And that's why I believe in Spot a Spider and talking and taking action. But education has to be our primary goal. And what I saw in my courtroom and what I continue to see is that sexual assault divides people instead of brings them together. Sexual assault, um, people with disability, mental illness, all the things that come into play in my courtroom divide family and really communities don't want to talk about them. They're not sexy topics for legislators. They're not sexy topics for people to talk about. They're Mm -hmm. things to be ashamed of. We need to flip the script and make sure everybody uses their power to make our world safer and better. And that's what this program does. Absolutely. When did you meet Dr. Saltzman and find out what she was doing? Gosh, it's been a while now. It was after the case, and she approached me with this um, wonderful program and idea and then sent me information and asked me to become a board member, and I agreed. Um, I'm not able to be on many boards because I can't show bias, so my role has to be you know, to not show bias, but I don't think that educating is bias. I think we need education in every aspect of our universe and especially in this arena. So I don't, I can't tell you the exact moment, but it was after this case Mm -hmm. when sort of everybody said, yeah, let's do this thing. And based on what she's seen and, and um, in her practice, and I think the clarity of her program and how it touches children from all ages. And if you watch her videos, which I implore you to all do, and she says in them, you know, this may be like I'm talking to a child, but it's really applicable to everyone. And right. I agree with that. Um, one of them, I, my middle child was raped, and I can't get prosecutors to prosecute. And it's very frustrating because I'm a judge, I know the process, and I say, let the jury decide. Victims are the evidence. Mm-hmm. It's about credibility and incredibility. But I think it's really important that everybody watch these videos. Yes, Mm -hmm. they're basic, but yes, they do educate you. They touch the heart and the messages in them can be passed on, not just to victims who hopefully will become thrivers, but to those before they become victims. Because if we don't recognize the signs, we're just saying it's a field day. It's, you know, an open market for everybody to be raped, assaulted, harassed, demeaned, all of those things. And it's not, we need to truly flip the script. And that's what is happening here. So that's what really intrigued me about um, assisting in this project that she has created. That's awesome. So you mentioned something sounds like you've had some reprisals for the work that you're doing. Yes. Um, people don't like that a judge is vocal. People don't like to talk about sexual assault. They don't like that I let everybody speak because I've, and I've had judges say, how dare you? And you need to get off the bench. Oh, well, now we're going to have to do this. 
Well, if you're not willing to take each case on its own merits, then resign, go pour coffee and have at it, you know, whatever else you want to do in the world. But for me, it's about every single case that comes in front of me. That's the only case I'm thinking about. Just like when a doctor is with you in the room, you hope that they're checking out your body, not thinking about their dinner plans. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, Every single human being who comes to court deserves their day, deserves to be heard. Yes. And I deserve to have a fully informed decision. And I can't do that if I'm not fully listening and participating to both sides. Right. So, yes, do I get pushback? Absolutely. Um, from all sorts of places. Thankfully, it's not the primary thing that's happening. The primary thing that's happening is I'm still contacted every day by people around the world, uh, countries I didn't even know existed, little cities and um, places who are saying, me too, and how can we get the justice that you gave? And how can I talk? And, you know, I'm not being heard, and I'm scared to talk. And what do I do? And is this sexual assault? People don't know what grooming and gaslighting are and how it happened and they feel guilty and of course parents contact me and say well this didn't really happen and my kids telling me this and i say, well you know you need to listen it's not about your guilt Mm -hmm. parents feel terribly guilty because it was on their watch well the guilt isn't that it happened the guilt is in not doing anything after it happens right well they um you know i've read the research and the outcome lifetime outcome for a survivor is so much better if parents immediately jump in and say, I believe you and I support you Um, so much better rather than denying or even hanging back. So Dr. Saltzman, I want to switch over to you now because this is your area of expertise. So let's talk about that. Um, Oh, I have so many questions, but I want to talk to you about your program how did you get interested or involved in this issue? Well, my story is a little bit unique, and I'll give it to you in a thumbnail so that we can get to other topics. But um, I was in a relationship with a life coach for 31 years. And in um, August of 2020, uh, a she insisted on that I have a full neuropsychiatric evaluation because she said I was either resisting the coaching or I had early Alzheimer's. And the result of that evaluation, which was a very comprehensive evaluation, was that my relationship with her was a relationship of undue influence. And mm-hmm. other names for that are a relationship of coercive control or covert emotional abuse. So in making lemonade and lemon meringue pie out of lemons, Mm -hmm. I took, I had 31 years of very subtle grooming. And so that was its own education. And when I combined it with my expertise as a physician and as an athlete, what I saw was that the patterns that abusers weave in any setting are the same, whether it's abuse in sports, abuse in schools, abuse in companies, abuse in the entertainment industry, abuse in religious institutions, in cults. The pattern of abuse is the same. And I thought, well, if we can explain this to children, then perhaps we can skip the victim survivor thriver thing and just let everybody be healthy and enjoy their activities from the beginning yes yes let's start with prevention shall we you know yeah so I want to go way way upstream yes so I know that you all know these statistics but I'm just going to mention for our audience that children with disabilities are three times more likely to experience some kind of sexual abuse. And it's even higher than that for children with an intellectual disability or a mental health disability. So those numbers are staggering. When you get to adults, because of the way adults with disabilities live and are cared for in 
congregate care settings and um, all of the programs that they're involved in, those numbers are even higher. It's so underreported in the disability community. I mean, it's underreported everywhere, but in the disability community, it's underreported even, even more. Um, there have been a number of TV shows over the years that have had, you know, Law and Order, for example, that have had some, you know, an episode that showed someone with an intellectual disability or a mental health disability um, who'd been abused and uh, just trying to kind of get the word out. But it's not enough, obviously. So you started this program called Spot a Spider. And it's, it's amazing. It's, it, it seems simple, but we were, we don't have any programs like this doesn't exist. So it is a, it's revolutionary. And what made you think about this as the way to start on the prevention track? Well, I think there's one other piece of my story. So I'm also, in addition to being a physician, I teach mindfulness. So Rosemarie was talking about um, really being present in the courtroom and hearing people's stories. Yeah. And I was a pioneer in teaching mindfulness to children. And so I think one of my gifts is translating complex or kind of unique topics into child speak in a way that it's really accessible and understandable. And as you've both mentioned, um, kids don't, kids and parents and communities don't know what they're looking for, don't have language for it. And so right. just giving kids language to say, even just something feels off here, that's enough. And then mm -hmm. as um, you both mentioned, having the parents really understand kids don't make stuff up like that. People don't report it or say something feels off for no reason. And so often the best thing a responsible adult can do is to say, tell me more um, and just let the child or the person reporting report at their own pace. Um, but the intention was really to make it child, child friendly so that we can have these conversations so that people, uh, you know, five and up can begin to have the language to discuss this so that they're not, you know, 500 or a thousand people um, right. abused by the same person because people didn't know what to say or who to tell. Let me just jump in and say statistically, when you're looking at rape, regardless of age, uh, people don't lie about rape at any greater rate than they lie about getting robbed or any, any other offense. So we're not seeing a whole bunch of liars about being raped. And when you have a child, the question, it's very interesting because it's a common line that prosecutors use, and it's so very true, is what does a child have to lose by reporting? Everything, right? What are they, or, and what do they have to gain? Nothing. And you can see it in the courtroom because families get divided. You know, the mom's side might be on one side and the dad's on the other, or the grandparents, yep. friends. And so they really have a lot to lose. And what do they gain? Absolutely nothing except they gain their voice and they stop a predator because many children, it's not just about what happened to them. They worry about their friends. Is this happening to them? And so they carry yes. the weight of the world on them. Yes. Well, and this is one of the conclusions family. of the first video is why do we name our spiders? And it's so that um, to protect other people who may be tangled in their webs. Yes. Um, to be a voice for people who are still healing and aren't ready to speak up, to have responsible adults enact appropriate consequences for their spider behavior, which Judge Aquilina did in spades. So thank you for that. And to show that we've reclaimed our power and that we're free. And so those are four reasons that we name our spiders. That's awesome. I. Uh, talked with a number of victim advocates and 
they will say that they've never met somebody that has been um, that that has been upset or has you know not been glad that they came forward that everybody gets something positive from the experience of kind of reclaiming their power and speaking and having their voice heard. Um, I don't know. And if that's that doesn't mean it's not, it's not excruciating. Like oh, of course. it's no walk in the park to do that either. Right. So um, you talk about two kinds of spiders. Can we talk about the two kinds of spiders and the differences between them? Yeah, so there's sneaky spiders and obvious spiders. And sneaky spiders is really the grooming, the covert emotional abuse, the coercive control. And it's all the little tiny things that come often precede physical and sexual abuse. And the only problem with thinking about grooming as something that precedes physical and sexual abuse is that what that definition misses is that the emotional abuse in and of itself is abuse. And it is as damaging or often more damaging than um, the physical or sexual abuse because it's so subtle. And um, so a sneaky spider, just some of the patterns of a sneaky spider Sneaky spiders are often really, really charming. They make you feel special. Um, and they'll stay charming and keep making you feel special until you kind of push back. And then when you push back, either they will become more charming, which is often the case, or they will start to bully you at that point. And the other things that sneaky spiders do are they separate an athlete from their teammates, an athlete from their family, an athlete from an assistant coach who may be raising questions. Um, one of the warning signs is like a, a sign in a, in a competitive setting or in any setting that says no parents allowed. Mm -hmm. That's a red flag. And so the more isolated a particular person is from their support network, the more, the easier it is for the spider to abuse them. But the sneaky spider super, super sneaky. Now, an obvious spider is obvious. That's, and I'll talk, I'm going to use coach, but it could be a school teacher or a music teacher or a boss. Mm -hmm. um, but it's the person who's yelling demeaning things and throwing things and, you know, pulling the football player by their helmet um, and those are behaviors that I think as a society, we recognize as abusive, but for some strange reason, we let coaches get away with behavior that we wouldn't let a teacher or a rec leader um, do when we do it in the name of like tough coaching. And that doesn't make any sense. Um and then the sexual abuse is the touching of various body parts or the interaction of various sexual body parts. And I'm going to say them now so that people know that these are important and powerful words. So the first two, generally, people are fairly comfortable with. It's mouth and hands. If you can say mouth and hands, you can say the next five. So breasts, vagina, buttocks, penis, and anus. And under no circumstances should someone in a position of power be touching any of those sexual body parts. And there's actually data to show that if people are comfortable using those words, they are much less likely to be abused. So should we should be teaching people appropriate anatomical terminology and empowering them to use them so that someone can come home and say, mom, the coach touched my butt three times in practice and it feels creepy. Okay. At my experience has been in the dance world. And when you have competitive dancers and, you know, they won't um, let you in your, your child is dancing six hours a day 
and the ballet master will not let you observe. There's no observation deck or anything. Um, you know, you just, and then your kid starts traveling at a very young age. And all of that is, uh, it's really scary. So, um, and that happens too. There's a lot of yelling. There's a lot of demeaning. There's a lot of body shaming. A lot of stuff goes on. I mean, dance and gymnastics are very, very similar in that way. I had a daughter in cheerleading and she wanted to stay in. It was competitive cheer. And there were the signs, no parents allowed. Well, nobody tells me where I can and cannot go where my child is concerned. So I'm that parent who crosses the boundary. And what I witnessed was the coach allowing the girls to fight and berate each other, kind of like attack dogs, which is illegal. And I pulled her out much to her dismay and upset. But there's so many signs and when a coach is allowing the bullying to go on that is also emotional abuse and the next steps then are also very very dangerous well and part of that just to untangle that a little bit is part of that is then you have this hierarchy and you're in or you're out and the special people feel special and then they're separated from the other people and when you get that special and unspecial and in and out, that's another warning sign because it's a whole power dynamic. And they're not, not only is the coach doing the power dynamic, but then it's trickling down into the, in this case, the cheerleaders or the dancers or the gymnasts or the football players. And then you have this weird thing of the athlete wants to please the coach. And so they're in this vulnerable position of, you know, and usually the first ask, this is another warning sign. Usually the first ask is no, it's no big deal. Like it is, it's a brush on the butt and they're waiting to see, is she going to say something or is she going to let it go? And then the next time it's not as much of a brush. And so again, they're testing and the less you speak up, the more vulnerable they know you are. And let's talk about grooming the parents because a lot of times parents are dying to get their kid with this coach who's like the best, you know, and they are just completely ignoring their instincts that something's not right because this is an opportunity of a lifetime for, you know, little Johnny or little Susie. Yeah, I think I think there's a couple things. Um, first of all, as parents, we need to be responsible for taking care of our kids rather than living through our kids. So that's super, super important. And, um, you know, just to segue ever so briefly, the percentages of kids in any pursuit that are going to go on to be the next great thing is minuscule. So you have to think about the risk relative to the reward. And then you really need to be looking at how the coach behaves with your child, how the coach behaves with you, how the coach behaves in the community. And again, remembering that they're often super charming. I mean, Nasser charmed multiple communities for decades, Mm -hmm. for decades. And so in a certain way, charmingness or reassurance needs to be a red flag as well. And um, anytime a coach is creating, again, divisions between parents, between parents and their athlete, between like a team as a whole, um, that's of concern because it's it's that isolating behavior again. Mm -hmm. I just want to jump in and say, and this isn't for those of you listening, it's not just about girls. It's also boys. We have the Dr. Anderson case here at uh, U of M. John Vaughn's been very vocal uh, about it. He's receiving the humanitarian award in a few weeks, but um, you know, thousands of male athletes were assaulted at the hands of Dr. Anderson, under the guise, again, of medical treatment, saying, well, you know, you might have prostate cancer, so I have to do a prostate exam on you every month. Mm -hmm. And 
clearly some of these were minors the parents were not told there was no informed consent and then he also took body parts from them semen they don't know if they have children out there he wanted to create the uh, best black athlete so you know that's sort of the next level of dr frankenstein mm -hmm. and these things need to be talked about because you can't say this only happens to the disabled you can't say it happens to only the blacks the latinos the male the female those who are transsexual whatever this happens across the board to any vulnerable human being by any trusted adult yes yes and they're in so many positions of authority it's um it's so it as a parent you start to feel like the walls are closing in on you and i just i can't trust anybody you know well and There's one of the things i do want to say is right most coaches out there are awesome most teachers out there are awesome but it's like crossing the street on any given day is usually safe but we need our kids to know if that car speeding, if that car swerving, then crossing the street, even if the light is green, crossing the street's not a good idea. So we need to help our kids distinguish safe adult behavior from dangerous adult behavior the same way we teach them to cross the street. That is such a great analogy. It, yeah. So, yeah. The, so when a doctor gives a shot, you know, the doctors and I, I, I think across the board, they're being trained differently now. You know, this is what I'm doing and here's why. And if and you need to, to educate your child on it doesn't matter if it's a doctor, a teacher, a lawyer, whoever it is, a parent. If they want to touch you, they should be asking for permission. If they want you to change your clothes, you ask, you have the right to say no. And why? Um, so this informed consent needs to be taught from the time they can say mom and dad. This isn't something that can wait until they're in seventh grade or in high school and know the birds and the bees. Right. We need to teach all of this from a very young age. In fact, my oldest daughter does not let my grandchildren sit on Santa's lap because of that subliminal message that it's okay to sit on a strange man's lap. Well, it is not okay. Right. They well, don't actually this is do something that. That's covered in the obvious spider video is like what yeah. types of touch are okay, in what settings, what types of touch are concerning, and it's super specific. Um, again, I use the anatomical language, and then mm -hmm. on the resources page on Spot a Spider, parents have a choice of a nude anatomical photo, which is the one that I recommend because you should know where your body parts are. And if parents aren't comfortable, then there's a bathing suit anatomical photo. And what I want to say to parents is if you think you're uncomfortable having this conversation, just consider how uncomfortable you'll be if your child comes to you and reports an event right? Mm -hmm. No matter how uncomfortable and awkward this feels, and I've tried to make it as comfortable and as easy as possible, it's way better to have this conversation now. And then the parents should really report to Child Protective Services, law enforcement, because there is a special set of questions that need to be asked of a child. I think the worst thing that I see in my courtroom is evidence that's tainted or can't be used because the child was questioned wrong or too many times or the parents try to gaslight the child and say, well, that really didn't happen. Of course, that didn't happen. And so now the perpetrator gets a heck of a good deal, maybe not even a registrable offense, and they'll plead because it's such a good deal. and They don't want to risk it, but the evidence is messed up. Because I will say, why is this, you, you brought these charges, why are you giving this kind of deal? Well, because the child was questioned wrong too many times, gaslighted. And so now we have a young child who's confused. So figure out, you know, who you report to, whether it's the superintendent of schools or, uh, you know, any higher authority, but certainly law enforcement and child protective services. They're always an option. Parents are so afraid to do that because they're afraid they're going to get blamed. They're afraid they're going to lose their kid. You know, it's, it's scary. If they don't report that may happen as well. Yes, I agree. That's okay to be important. wrong. It's okay to be wrong. 
So this is something that I wanted to mention, Your Honor. Um, I've been thinking about this the whole time we've been talking. So as a lawyer and as a judge, you know, we we are under this premise that it's better to let 10 guilty pe- persons go free than to convict one innocent person. That is not the case in this realm, you know, <laughs> not the case at all. We want everybody to report and we want everybody to come forward and to um, have the facts get sorted out by the appropriate people. Well, That's and right. we want to create systems that make it easy to report where victims are supported, where I would say, I don't know what you would say, Judge, but I would say there should be no statute of limitations for any type of abuse, I agree. physical, emotional, or sexual. And we want to have it a system and this is the second half of Spot a Spider, but we want to have systems where people are held accountable and not only the perpetrator, but a- any bystanders, co-conspirators, yeah. enablers, that there should be professional and personal consequences for those. And all of that's also laid out in the policies and procedures because yes, the, we can educate our family members at home, but as a society, we have a responsibility to create safe systems where you know who to report to, the people who you report to are properly trained to take a statement where the evidence is collected correctly, and then the system moves on from there, and hopefully you end up in front of a judge like Judge Ecolina if if you haven't been able to prevent it, but the whole system needs to be rebuilt in a trauma sensitive way. Totally agree. And there shouldn't be a statute of limitations. And as a doctor, I'm sure you can explain it, but my understanding and what I hear from the experts all the time testifying is people respond differently to trauma. And depending on how you're raped and how all of the, the circumstances, your body goes into survival mode. Sometimes people don't remember they were raped for years and years, and then something triggers it. There's all sorts of reactions, and we shouldn't have a statute of limitations. There's lots of reasons why people don't report. But when they report, we should take it seriously and let a jury decide. And by the way, I'm a big proponent of, and I don't know if it will ever happen, but if you are assaulted, 849 times like Trinay Gonzer was by Nasser. There should be 849 charges. Otherwise, right from the start, prosecutors are saying that you don't matter. Well, each assault counts in, in my book, and you mm-hmm. do matter. And so let's start by having you know every part of this whole process cleaned up and you know, have it victim-based, but also remember that there are people who are wrongly accused, but you're not going to be wrongly accused if the evidence is gathered properly. Right. That's a great point. So in Spot a Spider, you're doing some great work with families and children, but you are also really, as you mentioned, trying to get education out there into the systems that um, support families and children in all of their endeavors. So you're going beyond just, you know, let's just get these videos out to kids. Right? Yeah. And also, I want to point out that there's a fundraising piece to this. So for every videos that's purchased, I donate 20% either back to your group, if your group wants to register and have a code, Mm-hmm. then it will go back to you. So you can educate your group members. It's better than a bake sale or a car wash. Yeah. And, um, but I do want to see systems changed. I mean, I would love if just once when an organization learns that they have had extensive abuse, whether it's USA Gymnastics or Michigan or um, Canadian Gymnastics or, whatever, that they said, oh, you're right. This never should have happened on our watch. And we're going to be a role model for the world. And we're going to implement a program that looks like Spot a Spider. And we're going to ensure that we screen for hires, 
our hires for potential abuse, that we have systems of reporting, that we come clean when we realize abuse has happened, that we make you know, all sorts of amends in terms of financial and getting people therapy. And then as organizations and as national governing bodies and even the International Olympic Committee or whatever, you know, or as countries that we create laws that say, you know, if you are an abuser, but also if you let abuse happen and continue under your watch, like after it's been reported, because the number of places in the world I mean, just yesterday, I think the Boy Scouts settled a huge case, but it's like, okay, so you paid the money, et cetera, et cetera. But what are you going to do now to improve your system and make sure that this doesn't happen again? I think any bystander, and I want everybody to think about this, if you're a bystander and you do nothing, you are a co-conspirator to whatever crime there is. And that is not different in sexual assault or mental or physical abuse of any kind. And ultimately, when you're talking about the Boy Scouts, the coaches, any of these people who've been accused, once someone is accused, right or wrong, let the system work and put them on leave. It can be paid leave. I don't have a problem with that because they're innocent until proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. We all need to remember that. But we don't transfer them to another school district, to another team. And that is how so or many- another church. Another church, right. And that's or another they- country. I mean, we exactly. need international databases. Exactly. And they need to be up to date. Right. And it can be a certain code knowing that they're just under investigation so that they're not, you know, they know that they're not guilty right off the bat because we can't have that system. Our system will truly fail if that happens. But if there's a conviction that, you know, they are on some kind of list where they can't coach again, etc. But clearly we can't simply transfer them to allow them to continue this and that's what's happened and how it got so widespread in sports and the bus drivers and the churches and uh, you know the boy scouts and all of that and the group homes and the institutions yeah yeah oh my gosh this is a big topic but dr saltzman you've done a great job of pulling together a what a wonderful group of experts in your um, board and your advisors. And, you know, I wish you so much good luck, because I think you're going to need it in spreading this word and getting the education out there. I know that you've had good response so far, and I'm excited about that. And it's about time. It's about time. Can we leave this conversation with um, both of you, my doctor and my judge, giving some really quick advice to parents about, you know, what to look for and what to do. I think that uh, the doctor has really good things about what to look for and everybody should own and watch those videos and, and demand that it's in your school district. But I want to make it really clear that as a parent, you have the right to set boundaries for your child and you need to make sure those are clear, whether it's to a coach, a teacher, a doctor, your best friend, it doesn't really matter. When you set those boundaries, if they are not followed, that's a huge red flag and you need to then take action and pull your child away from whatever that situation is. I think as parents, sometimes we want the child to achieve whatever they want. And so we let the child or the coach or whomever set the boundaries. Yes. That's that's not how it goes. As a parent, set the boundaries, follow through, and find a different coach, teacher, or doctor if you need to. Thank right. you, Your Honor. I think that that's is great excellent. advice. And I would say, I would say, as daunting as this topic seems, I really have tried to make it accessible. And the most important things that parents can do are to have facilitated conversations with their kids way earlier than they think they need to. The the data is, you know, the kids begin, you know, most kids, the highest rate of abuse is like from seven to 11. So uh, start early, keep the lines of communication open. And if your child comes to you with a concern, believe them. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And Annette, thank you, because it's people like you who keep the conversation going that will allow this program and others like it to succeed for awareness, safety, and education. Thank you. Such an important topic. I really appreciate you being here. I know it was really tough for the three of us to get our schedules together, but I'm so glad we could do this. I, I just can't thank you enough for all the hard work that you're doing out there. This is tough stuff, but it is so important and we can't stop. We have to keep talking. Telling our stories means everything. I talk about that on this podcast almost every week, just about. Um, it's through our stories that we really learn from each other and, and we come together as allies in our communities. So thank you again. Really appreciate it and hope you have a great day. Thank you. Take care. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I just wanted to take a second to say how much I appreciate you taking the time to listen to these podcasts. I'm having a blast doing them, and I hope that you're finding the content to be what you were really hoping. If you are, please take a second to leave a rating and a review. It's so helpful in getting this content out to people who really need to hear it. Thank you so much.